Hi there. I'm your host, Ryan Schaefer. I'm a firefighter and EMT with a fire department located just outside of my hometown of Seattle, Washington. And welcome everybody to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. My guest today is Antoine Lane. Antoine recently retired as a lieutenant from the Austin Police Department, where he served for nearly 30 years. Along with his career in law enforcement, Antoine is a sought-after public speaker and founder of the company Training Lanes, which provides expertise in the areas of leadership and community outreach. Following his retirement from Austin PD, Antoine now works as Director of Policy and Strategic Initiatives at Axon, a company that provides tools, equipment, and resources for those in the field of public safety. I met Antoine when we both appeared on the Fox television show, First Responders Live, which was hosted by Josh Elliott. Antoine and I were expert panel members, along with paramedic Carrie Crivello, providing insight to viewers of actual footage taken from calls involving first responders throughout the country. I wanted to get Antoine's take on the changes he witnessed in his nearly three decades as a police officer and how law enforcement personnel can mend their often strained relationships with the community at large. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. And my guest today is Antoine Lane, recently retired from the Austin Police Department. And Antoine, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't tell our listeners how you and I met. So um, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the 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 restaurant, uh, not the restaurant miss. So I, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. I was going to start there too. So I'll let you. Yeah, tell I'll, I'll start with the I'll start All with right. the restaurant miss. <laughs> so I'm. I'm, I'm in over my head. Uh, I'm out in California. I'm trying to, I'm trying desperately to try to land a TV spot. Um, CBS TV studios. And I'm at a hotel and I thought, well, let me go grab some, something to eat. And uh, even though I'm from California, uh, I'm from the Bay area and, and, mm-hmm. and spent about a cup of coffee in LA. So <laughs> A like, different lifestyle between the Bay Area and a little Bay different, a little different. So I, I go into this restaurant and I order something to eat, and I look over to my left and I see this dashingly handsome <laughs> guy, and he's just sitting there chilling, drinking a cup of coffee. And I say to myself, "See, that's that's the LA look right there. I mean, <laughs> you can't even come down and grab something to eat without looking debonair." With your with your shorts on and matching shirt uh, and shoot. kickback sandals, looks like he had hair and makeup done before he came. <laughs> I did, and, and I, I said to <laughs> I said to myself, you know, Twan, you don't stand a prayer. Like you, you know, this isn't the way that you go about it. So, turns out it's the Ryanator, and so we find out later on the audition. Oh, and it gets worse. So I see him there, and I think, well, he's just so LA. And then and then um, you know, I go through some drama. I I, I land a gig, and when I'm going through some extra auditioning, I'm right next door. We had to say we had we, we had the same hallway in the same dressing room. That's right. So I'm we just, did just just a few feet away from him, but yeah. you know he had his door closed. He had he had his his name on his front door, and I think he was a he was an N already. So I still had to fight for my for my. Position. <laughs> you didn't have your so, name on your door quite. Yet. I didn't have my name on my door. You so that, yeah, that's how we met. Thank you, brother. I appreciate. Yeah, that. no, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, so. What Antoine's talking about is a, a show called First Responders First Live. First Responders that, Live, yes. That aired on Fox in uh, the summer and into the early fall of 2019. And there was a panel made up of uh, three of us, one representing fire, one representing police, and, and one paramedic. And uh, I was the firefighter on the panel. Antoine was the police officer. 
And yeah, I remember that well too, uh, that restaurant at the hotel. And same, because we were there auditioning and I was looking at you. I was like, there's no doubt this guy is here for the same show that no I'm way. here for. Because, no way. Yeah, absolutely. I was just looking around and I mean, I, I don't know if that's a compliment, everything you said about me, but I'm going to take it as one. <laughs> you, and, should. you should, you should, you <laughs> should. But yeah, just looking around the rest of that restaurant, you know, one thing about you, Antoine, you have this confidence about you, uh, just wow. the way you carry yourself. And yeah. I really respect and admire that about you. I don't even know if you're aware of it. Maybe it just comes naturally or uh, what have you, but you just had that about you. And I said, that guy's here for this show. For oh, wow. sure. That's interesting. And, uh, and now here we are a couple of years later. Unfortunately, that show's no longer on the air. But, uh, you know, I feel like we really bonded and uh, created this uh, lifelong friendship. That I think. That, oh, no, uh, without a doubt. And um, I couldn't really tell at the time because I think we we both were in crisis management mode. Right. We, we'd fly out. We yeah. we do the show. That was hectic. Then we had to fly home. We couldn't take off from being daddy and husband. So we had to work had to work at home, had to work at work, and then we had to work at play. And so I think we were we were running so fast, it was hard to appreciate everything that we did. Uh, but at the rap party, uh, at the rap mm-hmm. party, bro, I really had a strong sense of pride. I'm like, we all really did some. You got a chance to meet the cameraman in the field and all the people behind cool. the scenes. And, you know, you and I and, and Carrie got a chance to get out front with uh, – with Josh, but there were so many people that that were fighting as hard as we were, and I get a chance to meet with them and take pictures with them and mm-hmm. and dialogue with them. I, I, it made it all all worth the trouble. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, just a really special uh, special thing to be a, a a part of, and yeah, I, I agree. Just a, a lot of pride uh, from doing that, and yeah, you see what went on. Yeah, we would zip out to LA and get this little moment of you know, suspending reality, I guess, from sure. jobs and family and life back home and sure. chill at this great hotel, pop over to the set and yeah. uh, get our chance to, uh, you know, to kind that of was on the silver screen, but it was nuts. It, it right. really was Listen, nuts. this is not normal, man. I mean, no, it, it, I it was normal for us kind of yeah. after a while, but bro, yeah. that's not normal what we no, did. No. And no. Uh, I'm plenty proud and glad I had the experience. Yeah. Likewise, my friend. All right. So, on, on, on this and the reason that we were there, as I said, I, um, I was a firefighter in the show and still am a firefighter. You recently retired. How I long did. were you in the Austin PD? Well, I did 29 and a half years total. I did uh, five years working in the jail prior to hitting the street. And then I did okay. 24 and a half years on the street, brother. Um, and you retired as a lieutenant, correct? I did. I retired as a lieutenant in the organized crime division. It's a cool job. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very much. So thirty years, almost. We'll call it. We'll, we'll call it right about thirty. Sure. So you had to have seen a lot of changes, I would imagine, in that time. Your time as a, a police officer. What are some major changes that you saw in policing over that thirty-year span of your career? Well, I think um, I was forced to widen my gaze from just putting bad guys in jail uh, when. I went out to the police training academy about midway through my career and learning what it meant to try to instill in police cadets sentiments and, and strategies and tactics to help keep them alive out on the street. And I sort of realized that we're playing a, um, a pretty, pretty serious, serious game. And um, there's something that happened 
and we didn't realize it at the time, but the advent of social media about mm-hmm. 2005, 2006, when, when, you know, smartphone was originally for the rich person and it became a point where everyone had one. I think um, we didn't realize it at the time in policing, but uh, the social media platform would bring in a political element to policing where the, the, the 1950s old dragnet, just a fax ma'am's type of a paradigm yeah. was going by way of, of the dodo we had to actually start to partner with the public and it's been originally an adversarial approach to the public and and it was like almost us versus them and i was a part of that i trained people to quote stay alive out there almost at any cost and the one thing that's at the expense the most is the law-abiding citizen who could just walk up to you and ask you a question when you're making an approach on a traffic stop but you're so kinked up that somebody might pop out of the trunk and shoot you, that you have a hard time transitioning and relating. So the biggest change that I probably saw in my time was that uh, the, the public partnership wasn't something we were ready for. The social media platform wasn't something that we were ready for. And we didn't take the opportunity to sort of, like other businesses, um, weaponized, for lack of a better term, social media for our benefit, that there's mm. so much good policing that takes place out there that the public knows nothing about. And we end up just through the media cycle, just broadcasting the worst of our of our times as police officers, the worst incidents like what happened last summer uh, with George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. It, we just didn't we weren't offensive minded enough in protecting the integrity and brand of noble policing. And instead, we start chasing, putting out the fires of piss poor policing that we all get blamed for. And is that, when you think of that or talk about that, is that simply the ability that everybody had to roll around now with the camera and instantly record stuff and then post it? Or is it more, you talked about the political aspect, is it more communication that's happening on social media and things of that nature? But what do you think really drove or drives that with social media, that negative aspect? Yeah, it's one or the other. It, it, it's one brought the other. It's the chicken and the egg almost. Because what happens is this: uh, and before the advent of the smartphone, uh, it was a one-on-one encounter with you and the police. If it was a, not a very good encounter, you just ran back and told friends and family, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but if you record it now, then it's global news instantly. Now, the local government has to respond because that's a part of their political agenda now. So instantly the smartphone shook hands with politics and now politics require a response to piss poor policing. I call it the PPP media cycle, whereas there's egregious police conduct captured on video, then there's a public outcry, the second P, and then there's the political response, the third P. And that political response, a lot of times, boils out to mandatory training by the police. But the difficult part about mandatory training by police is if I'm up in Seattle and I'm having a great relationship with my public and some knucklehead in Miami Beach, Florida does something that's egregious, it's captured on video, there's a national public outcry, there's a political response. Now, I've got to go do some mandatory training when I in Seattle when I've got something great going on in my relationship building. Um, and that's one of the things that 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 is driving us a wedge between the public and the police, because 
there are the mandatory training almost leaves the police feeling a little punch drunk because what's what's going to happen next? This has been going on since mm-hmm. the early 90s that, that there's a there's an egregious police conduct captured on video, a public outcry, a political response that ultimately ends with the officers doing more training. So if this has been going on for three decades, how engaged am I going to be in this mandatory training? How 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 um, how promising does my future look in this relationship with the public? I'm sworn to protect and serve when I don't feel like they have my best interest at heart. And that's on the side of the police. Then there's a citizenry that says, hang on a sec. You're here to serve me and I don't feel safe around you. You need to make things feel safer for me. So that fracture between cops and relationship is what I'm getting a chance to work on in my current role and probably what I'm most excited about trying to bring a little bit of healing to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you say that about, okay, maybe it's a great relationship between the police and the community in one particular part of the country, and then an incident happens elsewhere. And as you said, with social media, that goes virtual in a hurry. And now something that you weren't even associated with, you're, for lack of a better term, guilty by association just because of, you know, your job and your badge and, and being a cop. Really I, tell, interesting take. I tell people it's like it's like being a lifelong dog owner and you live in California yeah. uh, and you you probably spoil your dog. You probably take your dog to uh, dog doggy sweet hotels when you're when you're on vacation or, or, or take him with you. He's got the best uh, foods and, and, and pens at home and, and play toys. And then some knucklehead in, you know, Burlington, Vermont mistreats a dog or lets a dog do something off the leash that's egregious and caught on video. And now the rest of the country has to do mandatory dog ownership Mm -hmm. training uh, when you had no problem with dog ownership to begin with. So what would you say some of the biggest misconceptions are that people have about police officers? Is that we're not afraid. Mm. Is that we're not afraid. I think um, there's this, there's this RoboCop mentality Um, and that I can assure you every traffic stop from a professionally ethical, healthy police officer, they make the approach on your vehicle. They're just as nervous and anxious as you are. And I think there's this feeling that, um, officers being cautious, uh, is to the detriment of the public. Um, and I know when you start getting into some of the conversations in black and brown communities, more specifically with their relationship with blue, it's that the direct result of an officer being afraid is at their expense. And that isn't entirely true. Um, every healthy, professional, ethical police officer from a strategic standpoint must have an air of cautionary approach to them. It may be perceived as afraid, uh, but that's just a natural condition. And that's something police would never admit before. They would never admit that they're afraid. Um, They would never admit that they're they're cautious. They would never admit uh, that they're nervous. Um, And so I think one of the things that we've got to do is break down this notion that we're robocops, to break down this notion that police officers are unafraid and they don't have issues regarding their safety. But... At the same token, they shouldn't be penalized by that, by the public that 
as a direct result of them being afraid, the public is now in danger. That's not the case at all. The officers are attempting to provide service to the citizenry. And in order to do that, he has to have or she has to have her head on a swivel. They have to be um, cautious in their approach. I think 1997 was the worst. And I know I'm dating myself. But that was the worst that it's been where an officer died somewhere in America every 57 hours. I, like, um, it's it's a it's a little bit more than that now. But we're talking about you starting a shift at work and before you hit the street, you learn of your brother or sister somewhere in America being ambushed or killed. Um, and now you've got to carry that notion to the street and still provide service to people you don't know. And so that that brings about it, its own cautionary tale. Now, to pretend like it doesn't exist isn't a, a way that you rebuild a relationship, but to just call it out, I think is something yeah. that we should start, but not be, you know, not be, uh, because we have to be cautious, the public then can't turn around and say, well, because you're afraid, you know, black and brown get shot. That's not fair either because the perspective is lost. If you can give the, if you can come into the officer's world and gain their perspective and the officer can come in the citizen's world and gain their perspective, what you'll find is we're both cautiously afraid of each other and we can do a lot to help rebuild that relationship by just being open and honest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with so much in life, I think that comes with the territory being a first responder in general, definitely police officers, inherently have much more risk, but I know people ask me about that a lot, whether it's just seeing the things that we see or actually going into a a house or building that is on fire. And yeah, I think sometimes people think that as police officers or firefighters, that we don't carry that same fear that everyone else does. And that's simply not the case. It's there. It's always there. We train for situations to mitigate that, but we want to come home to our family. And that's the the part that we've been missing. That's the part that we miss. When we say, when I say officers are afraid, they're not afraid of of having to fight someone to put them in handcuffs. And a firefighter is not afraid of of fulfilling their duties, but there's so much at stake. We have families too. I'm afraid of not being able to play catch with my son or get hit by a car and paralyzed or, or, or something worse. And so there's, there's more to it than just trying to overcome the obstacle of the mission. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Well, I can't, speak enough about what you and your fellow blue do. And my kids ask me that a lot about what happens if we go on to a scene of, you know, with a bad guy. And I say, you want to know something? We don't go on to that scene until the police clear it for us. It's like, let's make sure the cops are in there. Scene's clear. Now we can go in and do our thing and really uh, mad respect. And I mean, I'll just say it right here. I think you guys, you, you guys have the harder of the two jobs. That's for sure. Well, I appreciate that, but but I'm a little bit jealous because everybody likes firefighters. So <laughs> I, I told to, you that joke when we were on first responders. I don't think you really liked it, but what do all cops and firefighters have in common? <laughs> they, they all want to be firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't like it, but uh, there's a sentiment that that's true. That's for sure. Oh, man. So, Tuan, I want to get into a little bit about this. You just spoke about uh, black and brown communities. Sure. And... 2020 was quite the year on so many levels, the COVID pandemic being a big one, but yeah, really our streets, just a lot of passion and protests and riots around the Black Lives Matter movement. 
I just wanted to get your insight and your feelings on being a black police officer during that time. And what kind of personal impact does that have on you when you are responding to these Black Lives Matter protests as a black man? You know, Ryan, I had um, an incredible and to be quite frank, almost an overwhelming experience as to what happened. Um, and to, to try to put it succinctly, um, as a police officer, we're taught to back each other up. Right. And mm-hmm. I was on the night shift and um, we were dealing with the protests specifically against our headquarters. And um, I remember getting deployed out to the scene. Um, and depending on what city you're from, you, you may not be used to seeing, you know, rocks and bottles being thrown at police and, and everyone's in, in, in riot gear. And um, I remember specifically I had to deal with protecting the major highway in front of the headquarters to prevent protesters from coming up on the on the on the highway and, and stopping traffic. Um, and so. I had, uh, it was such a chaotic scene. It's, it's at night. Um, it's hot. Um, I'm in charge of about 50 guys. I got them all on a, on a line with, uh, their sticks and, and their, their, their shields and their helmets. And, um, it's chaotic on the radio. There, there, um, uh, fire crackers being thrown and, 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 and those types of fireworks just to try to distract us. And, um, there were rioters that were masked up, hiding behind peaceful protest folk. So through the smoke and, and the fog of it all, you'd have to try to pick out someone who was hiding behind a po- peaceful protester to throw a rock or bottle at you. And, and, and then we had less lethal rounds that we were shooting um, to, try to, to try to stage off uh, people from charging officers and snatching them into the crowd and and, and confronting them. And I remember specifically, um, I'll never forget it, Ryan, I, I caught eyes with um, this, this black kid and he mm-hmm. could have been more than 19 or 20. And he had, he had a, a rock, uh, a large rock that he had sort of cocked back to throw. And to my right, I had a uh, a gentleman with a less lethal round uh, shotgun, and that gentleman was looking somewhere else. So I had to tap the head of of that officer to redirect him towards this person who was about to throw this rock. And I remember he looked at me, and there was nothing said, but in his eyes, he asked or he stated, "How could you do this?" You know, how could you have this white officer shoot me when you're black? And and my response back to him was, why would you make me like, you know, this there's another way I'm I'm hurting just like you, brother. But this ain't the way to go. And um, we ended up uh, surviving the night and there was a lot of damage done to properties and that sort of thing. And it was pretty chaotic, but I couldn't sleep that night. And I remember. Uh, I didn't eat that night. And um, I, I, I had 
almost 30 years in by that point, and I still had trouble reconciling that. So when I say that that was a watershed event, uh, not only for America, but for a lot of, of longstanding police who, quote unquote, had seen it all, that was something that I wasn't ready for. And it, it really caught me off guard. Yeah, that's heavy, man. That gave me goosebumps listening to you talk about that. Did that have any cause in you deciding to retire? I know you've been there a long time already, but did it, did that specific event or those events that were really taking place in earnest throughout the summer play on your mind at all to call it a career? Yeah, they did, but not 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 like it. You would think I, uh, as you know, I have been um, I have been speaking on the side and run a sort of a parallel career as a yep. as a trainer for the last couple of, or last ten years or twelve years, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, my current company that I work for reached out to me to provide a webinar where I can sort of uh, field some live Q&A questions about um, specifically what this company meant to policing, uh, Axi Enterprises Incorporated and the Taser and and how that affected uh, policing and community. Um, And based on my presentation, I received an opportunity to take part in um, an area within the company that would speak to training and that would speak to community engagement and that would speak to the education of, of police use of force. And I felt like um, given a national platform with such a kick-ass company would yeah. be the way to go. And so it uh, gave it some some serious thought and talked it over with the wifey boo and, and came up with a plan of action and presented it to the the powers of be and, and got a job offer and been running ever since. Yeah. It sounds like really the perfect kind of marriage, perfect sure. fit for you, as you just said, I mean, both with your experience and as a police officer, uh, as a Lieutenant, and then, you know, running, uh, running a career yourself, uh, as you mentioned, I know you've done a lot of public speaking and a lot of training on the side. And so, yeah, really, this sounds like a, a perfect match for you, and I'm stoked. Thanks stoked for it. Uh, kind of two two follow up questions. Um, first and foremost, and then we'll get into what you're currently doing mentally, because I know this is really a difficult thing for a lot of those individuals that are police officers, firefighters, first responders out there on the front line uh, dealing with PTSD. And I think mental health awareness has uh, really been taken seriously and brought to the forefront in recent years. Whereas I think before it was. As you mentioned, no one wanted to admit that in this field that we're scared. I think a lot of people don't want to talk about maybe issues that they have or calls that stick with them. Maybe it was a sign of weakness. And uh, thankfully, I think we're starting to lose some of that stigma and and really starting to provide more outlets uh, for our brothers and sisters that are out there when it comes to mental health. I'm just curious, how how do you feel like you're doing? Is this after 30 years in this job, do you struggle with that at all? I feel like this this podcast is so so appropriate with regard to its timing because uh, health and wellness has sort of been the latest evolution in, in my my learning and my development as a quote-unquote expert of training. Um, yeah. One of the things that I've made the mistake of doing is I have not championed an actual um, placeholder in my building of curriculum behind true um, health and wellness and the damaging effects of of traumatic 
uh, instances and, and brain injuries. And um, I touched on it with 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 PE. You know, all of my curriculum includes professionalism and ethics and and, and talks about mental uh, hygiene at work. But I've never really set both foot in it as a placeholder and really challenged from the platform I've been given officers reluctance to come forward. Um, I'm working on a, a couple of pet projects with my current company now where we're talking about that um, very holistically. And um, it, uh, it wasn't until my wife actually walked by a recent Zoom meeting where she said, you know, I'm glad you're being a part of that because what happens to us Ryan, as, as, as first responders, we bottle that up. And in our greatest efforts to uh, protect our families from it, our, our wives and significant others are front row and center, and we can't fool them. And to think that I had been uh, running hard and running fast to try to uh, be a top performer and at the same time not, quote, bring my job home, uh, and after it's all said and done, to have my wife just sort of uh, very lovingly, but very flippantly walk past and say, uh, I'm glad you're doing something about, it. you know what? I jumped off that zoom and I went hauling ass into her room. <laughs> what the heck are you talking about? Yeah. And she was like, you, you exhibited those traits, uh, that you talk about with PTSD and, and, and post-traumatic brain injuries and, 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 and how those events that you tried to quote deal with. So coincidentally, uh, it's been more than just a cathartic moment for me to 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 be asked to build new curriculum in my new position uh, and for it to not include uh, health and wellness and, and sort of have that void filled. I'm, I'm quite proud. In fact, um, I'm moving out as an advocate of health and wellness and sharing some of my personal testimonies uh, about some 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 treatment that I've received in times past. And I sort of felt like if if I'm willing to be open uh, out front that I could sort of encourage others to be to be open uh, about sharing. And then we can start to change this this culture of keeping it all bottled up inside. Oh, man, it's it's so true. I mean, so many things that you were just speaking of. I was like, uh huh. Uh huh. Yep. I see it. I you said we try to push it down, keep sure. it down, but it, it ultimately comes out. And unfortunately, it's oftentimes it's the family that bears the brunt of that because you hold it together enough while you're at work or even around friends. And I mean, my wife always says she, she's like, I hate the first day you're back from the yeah, station. Yeah, you know, we work 48 hour shifts and I've heard that. I'm just that first day. I'm still in that. I'm in that mode still. And I'm usually tired and cranky and maybe saw something that people shouldn't really see. And sure. not only does the family bear the brunt, but then it's also, I don't know about you with your wife, but my wife often doesn't really want to hear about it. Like just, it's oh, so no. sensitive. She just want, and so it's it's twofold. Not only sure. are they bringing sure. it home, but then you can't really talk. Nor do I want to. You know, you can't really. It's, it's not a, a, an outlet really to to share. Do you guys have a peer support team? Did you? I, I know you're no we, longer with. We we did we did, PD. but yeah. it it went for not. I mean, just like you said, you you get that stigma attached to you. You get that that uh, that label um, where someone says, "I don't want to go through a door." You know, that's the. For the for us, that's the kiss of death, right? I don't want to go through a door with that guy. I don't want to go through a door with that girl. Uh, you, you're you basically got to find a new job, and so mm. to prevent that from happening, we did everything I can we we could to put up the tough tough guy and tough yeah. girl image so that we could be accepted amongst yeah. our peers. 
You know, I think that's one more thing too, being a police officer and where I uh, work in Kirkland, uh, for those that aren't familiar, it's a suburb of Seattle. Our police officers, they don't go with partners. They're solo. Sure. Um, I know bigger cities uh, typically at least have a partner, but that's one nice thing with the fire department though as well. I've got a crew uh-huh. and I think nice. it allows us a little bit more, sure. Sure. more people to debrief and to talk about after the call, go back. And sometimes somebody will lead a informal debrief. So I do think that is one outlet that we have in fire that, I that totally crew, agree. That crew mentality that that uh, really helps. Um, and and I, where I work, we're pretty open about stuff. I'm one of our peer support members. And for those listening that aren't familiar, it's simply as it sounds, a peer. It's somebody within the department or a group of people in our case that have received some additional training. By no means, it's what I ever claim to be a psychologist sure. or a counselor, but it's given fellow firefighters somebody to talk to uh, when they're are in crisis, whether it's dealing with the compounding effects of the job, uh, it could be something going on on the home front uh, with marriage or finances. And sure. it's really a safe zone where they know that they're speaking in confidentiality. Uh, so that's, and I think that's a big key to it, but is it utilized as much as I'm sure people are hurting out there? Probably not. Probably, Probably not. I mean, uh, yeah. I want to try to do something about it. So yeah. Well, let's talk about what you're doing right now. So you've recently retired and mm-hmm. I know you've discussed a little bit, but tell me about the new company, the new job, the direction that you're going. What's the next chapter here for Antoine Lane? So um, Axon, uh, formerly known as Taser, uh, is the company that I work for. Uh, we provide equipment and software for emergency services personnel in terms of uh, tasers for law enforcement and security, as well as body-worn camera footages and, and, and cloud storage um, of that video footage for emergency services personnel. And, you know, I just love the fact that our CEO came out after the incident this summer and said, we have to do better about building and rebuilding an authentic dialogue with the community because for over two decades, Axon has had great working relationships with police. Uh, but when you look at some of the products and services that we provide, the ultimate end user includes citizens. And um, in the unfortunate event that that a use of force is necessary uh, to restore order or, or to protect someone, uh, it, it, it it's not just the police that are at the brunt end of that use of force. It's some of the citizenry that we have to deal with in terms of of being a bystander or uh, a witness. And I love the fact that we're reaching out, trying to bring some clarity, trying to extend an olive branch for better education. And that was just way too exciting an opportunity for me to pass up because, um, you know, one of the things that I sort of pride myself on and being uh, a, a good police trainer is I, my, myself was so involved with trying to ensure that I put out a great product on the street that was tactically sound and could survive. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have a holistic approach of the citizen in mind and, um, to be able to educate citizenry versus just train a police officer. And I feel like the position I've been given now, I get a chance to do that as director of policy and strategic initiatives. And one of the initiatives we're working on right now is to ensure that when we build curriculum, we include 
the type of dialogue and the type of nomenclature that fits the needs of the public. I think one of the mistakes we've made as police is we oftentimes get too uh, into cop jargon. And um, right now there's a big push for de-escalation training. And and that's that's something that is very wise. And that is coming to a, a volatile situation and using some proven techniques to help render that situation down to a conversational level. But can can uh, can Big Mama and, and, and can some of the kids go home and say what de-escalation means? And so I That's think right. one of the things that we want to try to do at this this point forward as we start to rebuild this relationship is create some talking points where, you know, an officer can show up on the scene and engage in safe, effective policing that speaks to the citizens on what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say. And I love the fact that we've been challenged and given an opportunity where we can help bridge that because that's right in my wheelhouse and that's right in my specialty. So uh, I, I am living the dream right now, brother. Um, I can tell you this, and I want, I want to mention this before I forget. I didn't yeah. realize how proud I was of my years of service until after mm-hmm. I got out. And I only took a couple of weeks off before I started with the company. Um, but man, I get to, I used to be jealous. I used to walk into a coffee shop and see everyone just, in uniform. And I'd see everyone just staring down at their phone before I retired. I was like, I want to get to a point where I don't have to watch everyone that comes in through the front door. I don't have to sit to my back to the, to the wall so I could see everyone come in. And, and my wife teases me all the time. Cause if uh, we go out to eat and we sit down, um, she'll say, okay, have you got a layout of the land now? Do you, do you know this skip, this oh, skate route to Tuana, the kitchen? I remember <laughs> going out to eat with you after we were done filming. And uh, yeah, you always like, hey man, can we, can we do this? I don't, I don't like my back to the door. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and now I love my back to the door. And man, yeah, I go cool. to coffee shops on purpose just so I can bury my face into my, my laptop. But no, man, I, I was very, very quite proud. Uh, that I gave so many years to public service, as you will feel uh, when it's time for you. Uh, but what I'm doing right now, it, I almost feel like I'm built for it. And I, I, I told my manager at Axon, I said, you know, I still got a lot to prove. But uh, one of my mentors told me this, and he used an old quote that um, nothing's more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And when I think about all the things that the Lord has blessed me with, uniquely blessed me with, uh, and the hard work that I put in, in addition to that, and to partner with a company like Axon, my specific skill set, when they're out on this specific mission, uh, it just felt like perfect timing, brother. So I jumped and, and I haven't stopped running yet. Oh, man, that's so great. Well, you should be proud of the years that you put in for all your service. There's no question about that. And like I said earlier, this does seem like a perfect marriage. And it doesn't surprise me that you were doing a webinar and you wowed these the head honchos of this company. I mean, why is that not shocking? You're smooth as always, Antoine. Thank you, uh, sir. Just an intelligent man, well-spoken, so that doesn't surprise me one bit. Uh, so I'm going to hype you up a little bit here, and I want to talk some about your interest in pistol shooting. And I want to tell our listeners here that you achieved the ranking of Grandmaster, which is the highest ranking you can achieve in pistol shooting, and you were the first a black person to achieve this ranking, yes? Yes, although that carries with it a little bit of a, a, a caveat. So okay. uh, the United States Practical Shooting Association, USPSA, they mm-hmm. are the sort of sanctioning body that um, creates these uh, disciplines and the classifications with the highest being 
GM for Grandmaster. And there are USPSA clubs in all 50 states, and they host uh, local, state, regional, and even national uh, firearms competitions. And there have been people been associated with them since 1971. Um, I made GM in 2007. And of the people that had been around the sport for ever, including its inception, um, they were unaware of any other African American grandmaster. Um, I did make the front cover of the magazine. Come on, we're, let's roll with that then. I mean, come on. If they're unaware, then we're we're, we're going with it. So you made the magazine. <laughs> we're definitely going so, with it. <laughs> again, well, here's here's why. I think uh, my local my local newspaper wanted to run a story on it, and they reached mm-hmm. out to headquarters at USPSA. Um, and the response I was told was that there was a feeling that that might have been a little divisive as a story. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to agree. I have been in, I picked on Burlington, Vermont earlier in my example today because uh, I had been in Burlington, Vermont uh, to shoot a, a match. I'd never been there before. Um, but this is, um, you know, quite frankly, uh, a largely white male dominated sport. And if all the years that I've been involved in USPSA, including being in areas and towns uh, where I was the only speck of pepper in the salt shaker, I have <laughs> never, <Burlington, Vermont. laughs> I have never been mistreated, not once. In fact, I probably have been treated more like royalty. It's the fact that you love guns. It's the fact that you would be interested in competing with guns. I know I got a lot of props, even when I was a young pup coming up as a low-level shooter, simply because um, there was, I received a lot of uh, comments that police won't come out and, tra- and compete. They won't come out and train. And it's true. It's like it's very difficult uh, for you to be a police officer and go out and compete on a national level because some 12-year-old girl will hand you your butt. And, and to be honest with you, that that's the best shooters in the world are competition shooters. I mean, even special yeah. forces people go there. So you, you got to come out there to get that training. So the fact that I was uh, that I was unafraid to go out and try, uh, I got props. And the fact that I tried as hard as I could and the hard work paid off. I think the, the, the gatekeeping to become a GM is a little over the top. I mean, it, it's really, really difficult to, to do. Uh, and I was proud that I did. In fact, I got a, a second GM card in a, in a much tougher division. Um, but then I was done after that. It's just, it's just, it's just way too difficult for me. Uh, and, but it, it, uh, it's something that I'm proud of only because I was able to launch a side business from that and travel around the country, teaching cops who teach cops, how to teach cops just a little bit better. I sort of trimmed the fat of what could be eccentric in competition. And I took the basic principles of, of tactical pistol shooting from a police standpoint and married a system. Um, and I was able to, to give back because the police department that I was at uh, allowed me to train and, and and receive my pro card. So after I got my certification, I sort of wanted to try to find a way to give back. And I was able yeah. to do that. Well, that's one thing I love about you, man. It seems like you're kind of a coach and mentor at heart. And it seems like everything you do Thank you, man. is then carrying that forward and teaching others and training others. And I think that's just one of the 
things that makes you so special. I appreciate that. Hey, you know, one thing about that, that really, I remember when we were, our endless hours of sitting in our, <laughs> our, our dressing room as sure. we were, you know, yeah, you see the other side of, uh, of the television production and sure. all, the, you know, sure. hurry up and wait. Kind of yeah. Thing. Let's get you into hair and makeup and then, okay, three hours later, we'll get you on set. But, exactly. Uh, I think, I remember you talking about, what's the ranking right below GM? Master. Okay, master. So I I remember you talking about being a master for a while and really having difficulty yeah. making that yeah. hurdle, making the leap to yeah. grandmaster, and you finally achieved that. And 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 you had a mentor yourself that that I think you were working with. What allowed you finally to break free and make that leap from master to grandmaster? Control. My uh, my mentor, Young Lee, uh, who's a retired officer um, and a five six class grandmaster, probably at this point. Um, he, uh, he, he told me to go read the book. Um, and, and just for perspective, there was, um, probably, um, I know, I know the last, I know when I made GM only 1% of the population of USPSA population made it. So it can't be more than 5%. It's, it's at the upper 90th percentile. Don't make it. But the masterclass shooter is capable of making it physically, but there's a there's a mental crutch. And for me, uh, my mental crutch was control, uh, because when I was first taught as a firearms uh, student by police that there's a there's a lawsuit on every bullet. So you can't miss. And yeah. this this can't miss doesn't allow you to push past what you're capable of doing. And he offered me uh, my mentor, Young Lee. He offered me to uh, read a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And I thought to myself, there's no way. <laughs> and, and I had, you know I was a tennis player. So. See, and, and I, that's, that's I do. That's my on tennis. I played and, collegiate tennis. <laughs> and wiffle ball. What's the name of that? What's the name of that? Uh, that oh, pickleball. 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 Right. I thought you it was wiffle ball. It. Yeah, it's played with, it's played with <laughs> wiffle ball equipment. It is. But it's pickleball. <laughs> So he tells me about this. And I'm like, and, and the, the, the reason why I, I was so desperate to read it, Ryan, is because what happens to a masterclass shooter is after about a year, if they don't make GM, they start to slowly decline. Now, you can never lose your your ranking from master back down to A, but the mental aspect will just you'll start to chase your own tail. And there are a lot of guys that shoot GM level. Um, but they just couldn't find that little mental trick that allowed him to become GM. So he, he's trying, he's trying, he's from, he's from the Kirkland area, flew me out to his house. He gave me one-on-one training. He was trying and I just wouldn't let go. So finally he tells me about this book, the inner game of tennis. And I, I'm so desperate. I try it. I read that book and three months later I make GM. Crazy. Um, and it's, and it's just, um, about trying to find something that allows you to let go and let your body do. And for me, it was uh, falling out of a, an airplane backwards without a parachute. So right mm-hmm. before it was time for me to test, um, I put myself in that position where I'm just completely free. I have no control. And I was able to blast on through and, and make history. You know, I actually downloaded that book to my Kindle after that recommendation. That you, it's amazing. It's it's great. I I, I wish I had, I wish I had known about that book 25 years ago. Actually, I was playing tennis uh, as a junior in collegiate tennis because I've always thought that I'm probably a bit of a mental midget out there and had the game to 
probably do do maybe a little bit even beyond my college years, but uh, unfortunately between the ears is what got in the way all too often, and as is the case with so much. Juan, I want to bring it back to policing here and, and circle back around towards some of our beginning conversation. My question for you is where do we go from here? Let's say you're hired as the chief of a large city police department. What changes do you implement moving forward to really help mend and rebuild the trust between police officers and the community? That's a great question. And um, it's uh, interesting. I, I, I talked to some some nationally renowned trainers, the company I'm with, and, and I basically interviewed them from all over the country. And I asked that question. I said, you know, if you're sitting in a room with the president of the United States, um, your chief of police and our CEO, Rick Smith, um, you know, and they ask you in one sentence, what can we do to help rebuild this fractured relationship between cops and community? I know what I, I know what my response would be. And my response would be, uh, we have to treat people like people, but I had a hard time believing that it was that simple. So I sat out on my own since I've been at Axon to speak to trainers uh, in various parts of the country and ask them. And it ultimately came down to the same thing. Um, I remember I harken back to what happened to me as a police cadet in the early 90s. First day of the training academy. All right, Ryan. And mm-hmm. um, this particular instructor, he since passed. His name is uh, Ernie Sessions. Ernie walks past me uh, and he says, uh, he soups me up. He says, Cadet Lane, woo, you looking sharp, brother. He says, man, look, you got your, I'm standing at attention. He says, you got your chest poked out, man. You got the tapered waistline. <laughs> woo, look at the boots too, man. You all shined up, boy. You a bad mojo. He said, I bet you came down here to put people in jail, didn't you? And so by that point, you know, I'm souped up, right? So I was like, yeah. sir, yes, sir. And then he yells at the top of his lungs. He says, B.S. Hmm. Policing is a people's business. And the sooner you get that through your thick skull, the better off you'll be. And it took me Dang. 15, 20 years before I got it through my head because I just thought it was about putting bad guys in jail and the warrior mentality that I came under versus the guardian mentality that some community policing principles espouse. And the, and the fact that it's, you know, just the facts, ma'am, tell me what I need in order for me to do my job. Cause I'm the policing expert versus an actual public partnership where we work together to solve crime in a partnership. I didn't believe that that's the way you did it. And it took me years to figure it out. Now I'm on the other end of that. Now I'm detective sessions and I'm trying to get young Antoine cadet lanes to try to understand policing is a people's business. No longer should we carry uh, this warrior mentality. We have to put together an extended partnership with authentic dialogue where we talk about the things that we're afraid of and the strengths that we have and the weaknesses we have. And the public talks about the things that they're afraid of and the strengths that they have and the weaknesses they have. You know, I'm working on a project right now called Critical Thinking Skills Development and a concept called forecasting, where we teach officers how to forecast mutually beneficial outcomes 
before the call gets there. And a forecaster is someone who can demonstrate dual competency. They can maintain high tactical awareness, not giving that up, but at the same time, it's extending the humanities. It would sound something like this. I'm at night. I'm, I'm Officer Ryan Schaefer. I pull over a vehicle for speeding. I make a very tactical approach. Uh, and when I get to the rearview mirror, I see a mother of three and everyone in the vehicle is petrified that they're being stopped. But I must remain professional and ethical. So I say, Officer Schaefer, with any police department, the reason why I stopped you was because you were speeding. I mean, she had driver's license proof of insurance. That way I, I get a complaint from internal affairs. I say I treat everyone the same. That way, if I go to court, she challenges the ticket. I can say I treat everyone the same way. It's not a forecaster. A forecaster is the exact same thing. You pull over a vehicle at night. You don't know who's in it. Officer Schaefer makes the approach. He sees the same thing. He says, I'm Officer Schaefer from any police department. The reason why you were stopped, not the reason why I stopped you, the reason why you were stopped was for speeding. But is everything okay? If there's a sense of urgency, let me know, Mom. I can be a part of the problem. I can be a part of the solution. This is not a problem. Hey, kiddos, how y'all doing? Talk to me, Mom. Where do we go from here? I've completely altered the outcome of that interaction. Mm -hmm. And so now, instead of being professional with the iRobot style of policing, I've become a forecaster. Well, I'm trying to beat the call to the end of the call with a mutually beneficial outcome, my safety, the person's safety. And at the same time, I can probably gain an ally with the right customer service, for lack of a better term, even if a citation is issued, even if a, even if a, 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 a ticket, uh, a reminder ticket for inspection is issued, there, there's going to be a different relational outcome simply by me altering the outcome. And I believe that that's a one way that we can start to rebuild this relationship. You get communities to understand that, then we might be on to something. I love that. I love that. It's so funny. You know, one thing you were talking about there, you said when you were early on in your career, it was just about putting bad guys in jail. And I thought the same being becoming a firefighter, that if someone called 911, that it was an emergency. You know, that was right, like, right, right. Get, you know, and it was like first couple calls, like, ah, oh, we're going 911, something's going down here. And one of my first calls ever went on, it was just a basic medical call and somebody with a, their knee was hurting them. And by the end of the patient evaluation, uh, the guy who was the lead, the lead EMT on it had had the gentleman hopping on one leg on the leg that he was complaining about his knee being hurt. <laughs> and I just remember my captain uh, as we were leaving and heading back to the rig. He turned to me. He's like, "Ryan, sometimes people call nine one one because they just need to hear that they're going to be okay." Wow! And you know, that's really see stuck with me see? throughout my career. Is like sometimes people just need to hear that they're going to be okay. Interesting and that reassuring and. Um, like you said, it's it's all relationships. It isn't is. It? At the, it know, really is. Just humanizing it all. All right, Antoine, final uh, rapid fire here. We're, we're going to call these parting shots. You ready? Shoot. First thing that pops into your mind. Shoot. Give it to me. A book or TV show that you can't stop talking about. Is, is it The Handmaid's Tale? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've got to see that. Got to see it, brother. All right. A non-living thing you can't live without. Non-living thing that I can't live without? It's all right. You can't, be a, can't choose a family member or anything like that. What can't you live without? It's probably going to be a Glock 17. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't see that coming? <laughs> I didn't, but I like it. Very apropos. We'll take it. All right. If you had not gone into policing for your life's work, what would have you done? 
I originally wanted to be a truck driver. I thought it was so cool mm. to 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 have people depending on on my my delivery, and I and I would go through hell trying to make sure I got it for them and seeing the the look on their face. I, I as a kid, I wanted to be a truck driver. Hey, you want to know something funny? My my first job out of college, my first like if you want to call it, you know, corporate job, I worked for the U S tennis association, but I had this little three month window between getting that job and having graduated. I went to a temp agency okay. and I got a job driving a delivery truck. So not, not a semi truck. Sure. Think of like a big oversized U-Haul moving truck. Okay. And it was delivering electrical supplies. This company was a distributor and I had my routes and I still tell people to this day, that is probably the most fun job. Yeah, I, I mean, ever had. I loved doing it. It was very. I had my routine. It was. It was just. Yeah. It was predictable. But we had, we had customers that I would get to go see at every drop off, and I'd get to talk to them. And I had my. I think my Monday, Wednesday, Friday routes, and then my Tuesday, Thursday routes. I absolutely loved it. It was the best. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I, yeah. I just felt like that would be something really cool. Yeah. All right. You actually touched upon this one when I asked about the biggest misconception is that cops. Are unafraid. Scared. Right, they were unafraid. So, my last question: You have to do something that you're scared to do. What's your process of quieting that fear and proceeding, anyways? I focus on the outcome. I focus on the outcome. I I, I feel like um, you know, all, typically fears are very initial in the thought evolution. Uh, they're probably initial stages before you take your first step. Uh, and to not think about the first step. And sort of think about the last step is is enough to get the first step going. Right on. Antoine Lane, thank you, my friend. Man, I love you, bro. Thank you for having me. I miss you, man. I look forward to uh, our, our, our secret ingredient, private, private dinner. That's right, my friend. That's right. I love you too, man. It's been great talking to you. We'll connect soon. Okay, take care. Okay, man. You too. That's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanshafer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. Thank you.